a South African story. Nelson Mandela wa 1930. Um, so I saw I saw in Kyoto at the Manga Museum. So I saw a performance there and I thought it was fantastic. And then I went back to my little like backwater nowhere town. Um, and I said to my only friend, so I said, Gunch, uh, I saw this thing called Kamishibai. And he goes, oh, Jemma-san, I uh, know the Kamishibai performer in our town. We should write him a letter. Okay, let's write him a letter. So we wrote him a letter with English on one side and Japanese on the other side. And then two weeks later, this man just appeared and, and uh, would not give me a choice. He took me under his wing and he was like, right, we're going to make Kamishibai. Uh, which was incredibly daunting, uh, and I just went, I said yes. 1994, Hello there, commuters. I've been busy moving countries, but I'm back and looking forward to getting back into the podcast. Welcome to today's show on the idea of playfulness as a radical act. Today we take a break from the usual geopolitics and spend some time on South African art and culture. I'll unashamedly say that I loved today's interview and I thought about it for quite some time after I recorded it. My guest is a South African artist by the name of Gemma Khan. If you're a South African who still bothers to go to the theatre, you'll probably be aware of Gemma Khan's work. And if you're a South African overseas, you might well have heard people at home talking about her Japanese-influenced raucous plays. Having spent several years in Japan after university, where she was teaching English as a foreign language, Khan learned the Japanese theatre form known as Kamishibai. Kamishibai generally involves a single narrator reciting a series of short stories to an audience, using beautiful hand-drawn pictures as an accompaniment. Having got a strongish grip on the art form, Khan returned to South Africa from Japan and began to make small, intimate and sometimes scintillatingly ribald shows using Kamishibai. She had a series of smash hit shows with exotic names, including The Epicene Butcher, We Didn't Come to Hell for the Croissants, and In Boko El Lupo, which means Into the Mouth of the Wolf. She has toured various international fringe festivals, including Edinburgh, Australia, Brighton and Amsterdam, and won awards at virtually all of them. Last year, Khan was awarded the prestigious Standard Bank Young Artist of the Year Award for Theatre. As part of that commission, she's created a brand new show called The Borrow Pit, which debuted at the Grahamstown Festival in June, where I saw it. Like her previous shows, The Borrow Pit uses Kamishibai techniques, but it's not a one-woman show. This time, it's a multi-actor, full-length play. It examines the life of the British painters Francis Bacon, who died in 1992, and Lucian Freud, who died in 2011. Both men were huge celebrities in their days, painters verging on rock stars, as Khan points out, and both had very healthy egos. But The Borough Pit isn't a realist play, far from it. This show pretty quickly gets into some genre-busting, reality-bending magic realism, while making some searing observations about art and artists. I'm interested in Khan's work for a variety of reasons, and maybe you will be too. If art can offer you insights into your society you won't get elsewhere, then Khan's work is compelling because it refuses to limit itself to the local. It resists identity politics, and it particularly refuses genre. Perhaps in other contexts, this approach would be less remarkable, but I'm left with the persistent impression that in 2018 South Africa, Khan's playfulness is a radical act. Her interest in international styles and stories is rebellious in a moment where South African solipsism is not only expected, but rewarded. 
Her humour is a direct repudiation of the feelings of dejection we South Africans feel about the state of our society right now. And her refusal to stick to one genre or style seems almost an act of resistance in a moment where South African art and stories can only mean one thing capital O, capital T. For these reasons, I think that Khan is an arrestingly counterculture artist working way outside of the dominant South African artistic discourse right now. And yet, she's 110% South African, clearly rooted in the language and the culture and the continent. She's not alone, of course, and there are several other performers and musicians and puppeteers and visual artists and illustrators doing the same. But she's perhaps the most prominent in the theatrical world right now. For all these reasons, I was so pleased to be able to secure an interview with her. This was recorded very early on a Sunday morning. I asked Khan to talk to me about her approach to art and her new play, The Borrow Pit, fresh off the back of its Grahamstown debut. Gemma Khan, welcome to The Commutes. Thank you very much. You're in Cape Town right now. I'm in Cape Town, yeah. Uh, since November last year, Cape Town is my home. And what made you move? A combination of things. The, there's For the size of theatre that I make, there's more work in Cape Town. Um, and for the out of the time when you're not making theatre, uh, there's more of kind of TV work, film work. And then also I followed a boy, but that didn't last. So so those are, those are the three reasons. I was reflecting in preparing for the podcast on what kind of artist you are. And you've always been interesting because your work is counterculture in kind of the purest sense of the term. What do I mean by that? I think well, in South Africa, it seems to me that a lot of art is defined at the moment by isolationism and there's sort of a rejection of internationalism. And yet you've drawn on Japanese art forms to make theatre. Your influences are unashamedly global. Mm. Also, most South African theatre being generated right now really restricts itself primarily to performing like the spectacle of our pain and angst. But your work's mm. quite playful and cheeky. Um, I mean, you seem to resist identity politics. So mm. do you think defining you or, or, or suggesting that your counterculture is a fair assessment? I, I, I like it very much, but, but I, I must say that I've always been embarrassed by the fact that I don't um, confront South African issues and stories head on. Uh, and... It 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 it's, it's, sounds treasonous, but but they don't interest me in the same way as um, the stuff that I cover, which uh, I think is just uh, personal narrative stuff. Um, I was I watched Phantom Thread last night, and then enjoyed it very much and read a review. And uh, someone in Variety had said that uh, P.T. Anderson went for a story that didn't quote unquote say something which I thought was absolutely ridiculous because it's it's a it's a very very personal story about two um perverse people and I thought it said a lot and I uh, I didn't think that you have to make a boogie nights in order to make a statement so I th- like I think like the psychologies of people to me is the most interesting thing well on the topic of psychology of people um let's turn now to your most immediate piece of work that you produced. So just to start off and say congratulations for being Standard Bank Young Artist of the Year. I don't think it could go to a more deserving artist right now. It was one of the most exciting announcements, I thought, um, in in that awards history. So well done. Thank you. And as part of that, a work is commissioned by you uh, and presented at the Grahamstown Festival, where I was lucky Mm -hmm. enough to see it. And, And that production is called The Borrow Pits. Would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about The Borrow Pits and what it's what it's about? Yes. Um, it always helps 
when a play's been running for a little while and you get a well-written review, that kind of makes you understand what you've made in a in a compact way. But unfortunately, there hasn't been a decent review written yet. So, so I'm going to have to give my own kind of rambly version. It's uh, it's based, in fact, a, uh, a story about Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud, who were British painters active uh, between kind of 1940 and 19 and 2000, depending on when they died. Uh, and they were figurative painters during uh, modernism, which was a departure from figurative for the most part. They went into abstraction and whatever. Uh, but these men were rock star painters and they had muses that they did terrible things to. Uh, so this is a story about particularly uh, Francis Bacon and his lover, George Dyer, and then Lucian Freud and his second wife, Lady Caroline Blackwood. But after the facts are established, the play departs quite quickly into fantasy. And 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 again, I use the, the art form that I've been using for some time, the Japanese kameshibai, which is uh, uh, illustrated storytelling. Yes, and so a lot of our listeners will know your work from the Epicene Butcher and We Didn't Come to Hell for the Croissants, etc. And what I found interesting about the Borrow Pit is that you root the play in the familiar. So from the beginning, the audience will feel, ah, you know, I recognize this look and this feel from Gemma's previous work. And then you sort of take the audience on quite a different kind of ride, which which I thought was a, a non-threatening but exciting way to push your art form forward. I think it's always got to go like that. Um, uh, I read this wonderful quote about um, David Bowie and it said that he always balanced the shock of the new with the calm of classicism. And I think that is the way that you can advance, that you can take an audience with you into new territory. Um, and I, I also, like, I feel confident enough now as a as a theatre maker, I, I don't need to hang on to that box for dear life anymore. Um, and I also don't want to only be someone who makes Kamishibai for the rest of my life. So it was very nice to be able to give the box away to other actors um, and to actually move away from the box and, as my co-writer says, make a normal play where the actors touch each other. You know? Yes, not only where the actors touch each other, but it is that move from, from solitary and one-woman performance into, first of all, dialogue. And I know some of your previous work did have dialogue, but this is really living, breathing, you know, 3D characters. And, mm. and then also into, um, you know, direct a, a sort of quite, in South African terms, a relatively large cast. And that to Isn't me... that sad that <laughs> four people is large? But it is. Yeah, yeah. It, it is sad. And, and I was yeah. actually wondering, you know, there's such a prevalence of one woman and one man shows in South African theatre. And I'm sure some of that is economic. But I also wonder if on some level it's a failure of imagination, our, our hesitancy to imagine other worlds or imagine what other characters might yeah. say. The sort of attentiveness. I, think, I mean, if, if I were to hazard a guess, I'd say it's primarily economic. Um, theatre makers are dying to do bigger shows. It's just not really possible. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. you you had this chance. And how was it moving yes. into dialogue and working with many people? Less lonely? Yes. Well, so the, the, the production of all my shows has always been very collaborative uh, before before getting on stage. You know, there's uh, I've always worked with several writers or co-written and there's there's illustrators and there's people who make the boxes. So so it's 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 always this wonderful village of people. Uh, and then with with butcher and croissants, there was there was my co-performer who was always a silent performer. But I was very much like once I opened my mouth on my own. Um, and it was it was 
miraculous to work with other people. It was so nice. You just you, the, the the burden is shared, um, and the actors that that I cast are so smart, and and were very willing to play because, like you say, it was it was my first time directing and directing and performing in a piece at the same time. So I needed people who were going to be very patient. Uh, and experimental yeah and let's just go back to Lucien Freud and Francis Bacon what drew you to those two particular painters Mm. Um, Bacon has kind of been lodged in my art brain my making brain for a little while there was a video I did a rather disastrous residency in Amsterdam in 2014 um, and I was kind of mashed together with this uh Dutch actress who's also a performer and a visual artist. So they were like, oh, well, then you guys can work together. But our, our neuroses clashed very badly. But she did show me an interview uh, by uh, an art critic, David Sylvester, with Francis Bacon. I think it was then uh, turned into a book, this series of interviews. Uh, and it was so – it was fascinating to me how much of a performance Bacon gives of his own thoughts – and if you watch interviews, interview footage with him, and there's a lot of footage of him, more so than Freud, uh, he says the same things about himself 30 years later with the same intonation. So, so I made a little art film around that, just uh, just looking at, um, we did a lip sync of it. So uh, an actor lip synced the dialogue in that Bacon interview, and then we played original Bacon and actor Bacon side by side. And once you see a very obvious performance of the of the dialogue then you realize that bacon himself is performing um so he was very interesting to me and then i was at a dinner party where a woman told me the story of of bacon and dyer that i was kind of peripherally aware of uh, and then she said that lucian freud had also painted bacon's lover george dyer and then i thought to myself if freud takes so long to paint someone because he takes months and years uh he must have spent a lot of time with this very troubled man and then in a biography of Freud, the only thing he says about George Dyer is, oh, yes, poor chap, he stayed with me when he had some trouble, and uh, and then he killed himself. <laughs> and I thought, that is brutal. Um, so then I started looking into them and uh, doing, doing a, a period piece allows you to never have to think about technology when you tell stories. You know, if you tell stories, a story set in the 60s, there are no computers, there are no phones, and that when people have the money in, in TV and film, they, they turn away from modern stories because th- those those things just destroy narrative. So it was nice for me to, like, go back to period and, uh, yeah, and, and, and just then engage, you know, like, despite saying terrible things about these men, and I do think that they were monsters, there's something very sexy and alluring about that time in London, yeah. So I just, I wanted to get my hands in. You use the word monsters and um, you produce this, I don't know what the right word for it is. Is it a program or a magazine to accompany uh, oh, yes, the, the book? Zine. The zine. I think you're the only person who bought one. Thank you. <laughs> I have a copy right here and read it closely. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to call it a sort of accompanying um, narrative. Uh, yes. But in it, you talk explicitly, and in the play, you talk explicitly about these artists being vampires. And the play mm. is very much about artists and their muses, as you said, um, mm. and, and that the muse is sort of sucked dry, perhaps figuratively but perhaps literally um, mm. and you describe in this this accompanying program a whole lot of rules which sort of govern the relationship between the vampire and the muses and then watching the play it struck me as being deeply about the exploitative nature of 
ambition and maybe the exploitative mm. nature of art itself, which made me wonder, mm. are you exploited or do you do the exploiting? I think um, definitely both. You know, like you don't need to get many beers into actors or artists for them to start complaining about like how little money we make. And uh, uh, if you think about visual art, you know, an artist will sell something and a couple of years later it goes on auction for 10 times the price. They never see it again. Uh, galleries have artists in golden handcuffs and, and theater as well. So like, like we, we all feel very exploited, but at the same time, the difficulty it takes to make, something and i think this is the question i wanted to explore is i know how difficult it is to make a piece of work mm. um and it's very it's 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 electric but it's also painful and draining uh and myopic and 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 uh, as artists that's our choice to do that but we pull everyone around us into it you know so like why why do why do my friends and lovers and parents have to feed and clothe me while I obsess about something. And, you know, like why does uh, someone have to pay for my dinner because I can't afford to, because I get to just focus on, on this um, little piece of work that I do. Uh, so I, like, I think that's, that's the side of exploitation that artists don't really talk about is that we do, we we rely so much on other people and then and then for the work that we make obviously we actually just take from people as well you know like i don't think there's any writing that isn't observed which means that if you're in in the realm of someone making something they're going to be taking pieces of you i wanted to just also ask what is the title the borrow pit can you talk a little bit about the title mm um, the the man that I co-wrote the the play with, I'd, I'd wanted someone else to write the piece because because I'm not a writer yet. <laughs> um, and then I realised like even with a even with a budget from Standard Bank, I couldn't afford to pay someone to do all the research and the and the the foot soldier work of of writing this this piece. But uh, a friend of mine who's a writer director in Brazil, and he's very into horror as a genre, and also has a broad knowledge of theater and and film. And I thought he was the right fit, so I asked him to write with me. He'd said to me, "We must go for like quite a schlocky title, like the the vampire painter or something like that." And he wasn't terribly wowed by by the borrow pit, but I like a title that that doesn't match perfectly with the story the same way as like I like music and film that doesn't match perfectly with what's going on on camera so the uh, a borrow pit long story short <laughs> borrow pit is um is an excavation out of a mountain or out of the earth where developers have used that earth usually to build the road next to the hole um and and the irony is that it's called a borrow pit but nothing is ever returned to the hole mm. And I also wondered if it was a reference to debt. Um, you know, I sort of sometimes feel like I'm in a borrow pit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if it, yeah. if it had sort of reference to that decadence as well, because there was a lot of money on show in that play, you know, all their yes. lifestyles. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> this this play is going to keep borrowing from me because it hasn't it hasn't started making its own money yet. So yes, the economics um, of art in South Africa are probably the most scary aspect. They're terrifying, terrifying. I mean, I'm I'm trying now to to have a 
a long run of the play. In fringe theatre, we all do favours for each other because we love each other and we love the work. But it means that there's now a culture of, of working for less than you're worth. Uh, and, and I refuse to do that. So, it, it, But it's, it's kind of shooting everyone in the foot because it, to, to be able to afford to pay the team properly, yeah, the economics of that simply don't work out until someone rich comes and, and, and gives you a kickstart, you know. And having said that, Kickstarter and crowdfunding, I, I also refuse to do because you're not accountable to the people who give money to you. Um, so I, I, I just think it's a it's a ominous model. Yeah. If we just pause on the economics, I mean, I think a lot about this, um, and um, I and I'm wondering if you don't have a government, so say for example the the British government, to a lesser extent the American government, um, if you look at the German government, they allocate mm. large amounts of money to the arts, which are loss-making, but the view is that it enriches mm. society and contributes mm. to social cohesion and also is just in very many ways a human right. And then the other model is philanthropy. You have some enormous billionaire mm. who chooses to dispense large amounts of money to the Met Opera or whatever their passion is. Mm. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on the South Africa, the way arts are not funded in South Africa and if either of those models might work for us? Yeah, I mean, I think both models would work. I th- and, uh, you know, we, we when we have beers and uh, lament how little money we get, we also lament when we do get the money that it's dirty money. You know, because now not only is artists missing, <laughs> now we've got to feel guilty about the money that we get. Um, but I think that if you scratch scratch around, all money is dirty money, especially if it's if it's um, private private money. Um, how much do we have to care about that? I don't know. I I would take I would take the money from anybody, from the government, from a philanthropist. Uh, but but for theatre, I think um, that those kind of benefactor situations are hard because theatre runs at a loss so profoundly, you know, much more than, than anything else because there isn't a product to to, to sell at the end of it. Um, there isn't a, a piece of, of work. It, it's transient. It doesn't exist. Whether it benefits the public, like sometimes I, when I, when I feel like I'm the, the vampire, then I think that I don't contribute anything to society. Uh, but then when I see a piece of work that moves me profoundly, which happens all the time then I yeah like you say I, th- I do think of it as a human right and the best thing the best thing about being a human being I like that idea of talking about does it benefit the audience because I think this idea dominates so much of the art we make in South Africa I mean I was amazed reading the program for the Grahamstown Festival which is the main mm. guide which lists all the shows how many of these productions were almost sermonic in tone and style like these sort of one hour doses of strong medicine designed to quote unquote cure a sick audience of their stupid or ignorant ways and Uh, uh. one of the reasons that your work seems refreshing is that it resists the fashion in most original South African theatre towards didacticism this goes back to your earlier point about storytelling yes but I I mean it was it was something that that I that I realized very early on which is if if the audience feels obliged to watch the work, you know, if if theatre becomes church in that way, where you're like, oh, I have to go, and you know, I know mm. it's good for me, you're not going to win over new audiences. Um, and I also like the the fact that entertainment can't be enriching or smart or carry a message. 
is such nonsense. I mean, how many examples of that do you need? So uh, it, it, it frustrates me that every festival and theatre has the mandate to develop audiences, um, which means to make audiences, the people who support the arts, I think worldwide, but in South Africa, are middle-aged white women. That is the people who buy books, buy tickets to shows, go to talks, you know, but they are going to die. So let's make new ones. And then uh, if, if, my, if my work is, um, appeals to a younger audience, for God's sake, just let me do it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I was wondering if, if this is partly to do with your, it's not an unusual skill set, but they are very complementary having studied both fine arts and drama. And if, mm. if the visual arts force the artist to be one step removed from the literal and the explicit and the didactic um, with more emphasis on storytelling and less on brainwashing. I mean, how much do you think your background and your um, degrees influence the way you approach making art? Off the top of my head, I would say it was, it was my, my, interests and my tastes that that inform that more strongly yeah like i, I i've i've always enjoyed um what 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 did you what do you call it uh, subversive work yeah so I, I think that's where it, where it came from mm. so you're not you're not attributing too much of it to formal education do you think that that's overdetermined yeah formal education there was there was so little of it that was useful really okay yeah um, I, I had uh, in in fine art. I had a, a, a wonderful teacher, and in theatre, in the design department, I had a wonderful teacher. I, it's possible that, that that all students can count those wonderful teachers on one hand because the the rarity of like having that connection with a teacher. Uh, you know, if you get one, if you get two, you're very lucky. Um, but the the Witz drama department to a greater extent, but the fine art department too have always been very sick departments. Am I allowed to say that? They're not functioning. They're not mm. well. Um, and that, uh, and the, the, now that I'm at the age where um, uh, my friends are staff there rather than students, and they're all so desperately unhappy, like a de- desperately unhappy staff is not going to make for a a good school. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so the, 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 the formal teaching that I got, was 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 fine. It was adequate, but then it was stuff that sometimes through university, but sometimes through completely different things uh, that you just stumble upon by mistake, and that just like rips open the the world of possibilities for you. I mean, the most obvious is actually finding the the kamishibai in Japan, um, but then you know you you <laughs> there was a there was a workshop by Anton Kanemeyer and Conrad Burtis, who are the bitter comics. Uh, guys, mm. there was a workshop that they gave when I was a student at university, and the department almost tried to stop us from going to this workshop, which was held at the university. You know, they were like, "Oh, it interferes with our teaching hours," and blah blah blah. And I couldn't believe that they they, they wanted to, to like prevent us from from access to this to this workshop. And but 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 I did attend it, and and that was like a thing, you know, where they they just teach you. It's just it's just like one thing you can learn. Use this pen on this paper, or um, let's let's make a five a five uh, frame uh, comic without words to tell a story, and those kind of things. Just like it's you know like it's a it's a square bolt in a square hole. You know, and suddenly things just go click click click. 
So is that maturation, it sounds like that maturation as an artist is about finding things which enable you to make more art and those things which in fact are obstacles or kind of inhibits it. There was a quote in your program which I wanted to ask you about. So something that's mm. very present in the borrow pits is the idea of the unconscious. Sometimes we understand why we do the things we do and sometimes they just happen and we're not entirely sure what those inner forces are. Um, mm. But in, the, in this program, uh, you tease the reader and you say that Bacon forgot how to make art because of psychoanalysis. <laughs> uh, and then say, um, artists should beware, knowing thyself ain't good for business. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, as, as well as uh, Marco Dutra, who was the writer with me, I employed the services of uh, an artist called uh, Jakub van Skalkveik, who is a painter and musician and writer and Renaissance man. And so as I was working through the story with him and we got to the scene where Bacon heads off to Geneva, uh, for psychoanalysis, he said to me, he said, this is very important. He said, <laughs> he said, psychoanalysis will, will ruin a painter because, because the struggle that, that you have with understanding yourself is where, is where the work comes out. Um, and we laughed. I laughed with all of them because I thought that was such a, why is it humorous? I don't know. <laughs> the painter in psychoanalysis can no longer paint. Um, do I think it's true? No, of course I don't. Like I, 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 I'm a, I'm a South African Jew. I think therapy is like the best thing in the world, you know, and it's very, very important. And I love watching, um, cause I got onto that train quite early, but I love watching my friends suddenly start psychoanalysis and or therapy and, and, you know, like wake up to themselves. No, I, I, I don't think it destroys art making by any means if, if anything like the yeah, your your understanding of yourself will make art making easier not not the the creative side of it i think the creative side definitely comes from subconscious places but then like uh making yourself less depressed or making yourself less anxious is going to make you more productive it's interesting that you say that i, I watched a whole bunch of interviews with you before this podcast and a lot of the origins of some of your most wild and creative sort of artistic fantasies seem to me to in fact be born of great pain. You regale your, your year in Japan with good humor or your years in Japan and Ireland with good humor, both in your speeches and also in your, in your art. But in fact, they sound to me like quite dark and challenging and difficult times. I mm. remember listening to them and thinking, my God, to be stuck in sort of um, a backwater in Japan, not fully able to speak the language away from friends and family actually strikes me as a recipe for a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so is pain, is pain the, the breeding ground for great art? I think meaning the pursuit of meaning is, is, is a breeding ground for great art. And, and there isn't much meaning that you can get from just having a nice time with your friends and having a glass of wine and going home and going to sleep. So, so I, I think, I think any discovery will create meaning and, and good art comes from meaning. Um, I, I Japan gave me the nervous breakdown and the art. Uh, but I wouldn't have been able to make the art were it not for the therapy that allowed me to understand what had happened. Um, and having said all that, I think that art as catharsis is a very dangerous space because that can become indulgent and boring. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of stuff being made globally now is 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 personal narrative stuff, which is I'm going to tread carefully here. It's not easy, but it is a fertile ground that everyone has available to them. But 
just because we all have stories, I don't think that they're all worthy of becoming public, you know. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of navel gazing that that is happening with varying degrees of artistic success. The catharsis is personal, but the but the artistic success. Hmm. Yeah, it is a hyper age of narcissism, isn't it? It and, is. And that it has is. limits. It does, and and that's why I was I was very happy to after so my last show in Boca Lupo, which was a, genuinely a one man show. Um, it, it was so lovely to get out of my own head, and then also realize that you can you can process a whole lot of personal thoughts through narrative, and 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 story involving characters and dialogue, and you know, um, it, it it felt to me like an like an like a like a lesson and an advancement in what I can do, is to is to move away from the personal narrative. It's so refreshing. I, I just love it. And there's so little of it on display. Um, I mean, Mike van Kran comes to mind as an exception, you know, someone who's mm-hmm. really interested in multi-dialogue and, and other stories, but there just doesn't seem to be enough of that for me um, on the South African yeah. stage right now. Well, I mean, back to the economics of it, I think like uh, to write something properly is expensive. And I had the privilege of taking see, October to April, mm-hmm. six, seven months to write this. And, and 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 the economics of that simply doesn't work because of course people can be writing while while they have their day jobs but I got to like sit down and not do anything else for two months except write and I'd had four months of research part time before then and I think in South Africa no one is writing is taking that long to make a play although it is interesting to see in South Africa how often the economic begins to constrain the actual imagination I think that's what also makes mm. me very anxious is that you know I'll talk to my artist friends particularly in theatre and they'll say I, I don't even want to dream into that space because there aren't the mm-hmm. economics to create it and then that becomes self-censorship and a making sure. um, and making of one smaller yeah well I, th- I think I was lucky because Kamishibai exploded that for me because with the illustration you can you can go anywhere you know so it, like all forms of theater can can do that you know you can have a helicopter exploding on stage with no money <laughs> <laughs> yes. but like you say you have to have the imagination and I think maybe then Kamishibai was like the the key into that for me is that oh I can draw a helicopter exploding but then it's a it's a small t- step to go oh I can say the helicopter exploded I can watch the helicopter explode or whatever it is I, I don't think I'll ever have an exploding helicopter in any of my shows it sounds really cuck <laughs> but I don't know cool. uh, I, I think about the A-team the 1980s could be good Airwolf <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but that's that's also like a a, a genre thing, and I think South African theatre, as you mentioned, is is very restricted in the genres that it plays in. Um, and because of the success of the Epstein Butcher, I was lucky enough to travel a lot and see a lot of theatre around the world and see that um, that people are touching on all kinds of genre. You know, sci-fi, horror. Um, it, it, yeah, and 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 South Africa is 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 very much in this kind of like, what would you call it? Drama, historical drama, and uh, personal narrative, and you know. <sighs> Except, but then, but then, and I would say in Joburg specifically, there's like fringe theatre being made that is not 
that is not in that genre and it's all fantastic and it's completely mad and it's messy and you know also i'm thinking of the work of naomi fendikak and that sort mm-hmm. of work is just really interesting so you're talking about more flexibility in genre and being a bit more playful what else did you mm. learn from your international tours what what other lessons could south africa learn from your travels yeah i think and I, I, I can't come back and, and preach a universal rule because I can only speak for myself. But what was really eye-opening for me was uh, the playfulness and the the commitment to to a weird idea, which I think is also difficult in South Africa, but we must do it anyway, is that the theatre-going audience is not big enough to hold a whole lot of sub genres of theater you know so if you're making like radical feminist cabaret are you going to have an audience big enough for it um whereas you know around the world there's 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 enough people willing to try i think maybe that's it is that that the audiences really are willing to try and whenever q magazine at the grahamstown festival um interviews me and says what can you recommend on the fringe then i always say just go and watch something that you've never heard of because I think, like, you know, there are these wonderful plays that, that arrive and die in one festival because no one watches them. What else can we learn from the rest of the world? Lighting. Interesting. <laughs> if, if, if you don't want to be constrained economically and lighting can become very expensive, but it is also the cheapest way to transform space. Um, and I think we're very old-fashioned in our lighting here. Gemma, you're one of the most hard-working artists uh, sorry let me rephrase that Gemma you're one of the most hard-working theatre practitioners I can think of in South Africa it's clear when you get on stage just how many hours of labour go into all of your productions and I really feel it's one of the biggest signs of respect for an audience just to you know paint those paintings to have crafted the stories to have rehearsed the piece you're just not afraid of labour and so it made me wonder can you talk a little bit about your process like what does a really good productive day look like for Gemma yeah um well firstly you rephrased that sentence and said theater maker not artist but i'm very comfortable with being called an artist and i'd like to be called that an artist who works in the medium of theater no no no. the rephrasing was not because you're not an artist it's because i actually think in terms of labor i often see it in the visual arts and musicians but in theater not so much but in theater not so much is that unfair Well, also, I think theatre, perhaps theatre makers stretch themselves a little thin. So they will be working as hard as me, but on three productions simultaneously. And then those productions are only getting a third of their attention. And I think it's just a different model. It's kind of a scattershot model of let's make three and see which one sticks. But I'd rather spend a lot of time on, on one. It just makes more sense to me. Do you know what I mean? Um, so a productive day, well, what's, what's wonderful about the theatre that I make is that it allows a productive day to be very different depending on what part of the process it is. I, I like to think of it as eating, digesting and excreting. <laughs> and ex- <laughs> so the, the, eating, the eating part is when you, you're free and you're looking for another project and then you can just read and go to art galleries and watch movies and and it was it was nice to make a switch in my brain to to realize that that's not being lazy that's working you know to to absorb then the digesting happens almost subconsciously uh and then suddenly something is ready to be excreted and then the excretion is 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 what looks like hard work so that's writing um and a, a writer friend of mine taught me the pomodoro method which is uh, setting yourself a timer for 45 minutes and for those 45 minutes you just type 
uh, and you don't look up anything on the internet and you don't get distracted. Um, and then when the 45 minutes is over, then you can take a break and do research or whatever it is you need to do. Uh, and if you can get three or four 45 minute sessions in, in a day, you're doing very well. So, so the, the beginning of the borrow pit looked like that, um, with a lot of research and conversations with Marco and Yaku. And then we storyboarded together, Yaku Becky, who's my oldest friend and co-illustrator. We storyboarded it together. And then, and then the, the really painful work of illustrating, which is just going into the studio at seven o'clock in the morning and hoping to God that by the end of the day, you've made at least one decent drawing, but there's no guarantee. It, that's the really scary part for me because I don't think of myself as a, uh, I don't, I'm not a visual artist. I like I, I make visual props, but you know, um, uh, it, it, it's it's a very weird, isolated headspace to be in, um, and it was wonderful to to think of myself in comparison to the the artists whose story I was telling. Not not to compare myself uh, critically, but but to to know that now you're just spending time alone with an image that you're creating um, and the, and the judgment that goes into that, both good and bad. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's very hard. And as, as, as Becky said to me, she said, painting is something she wouldn't wish on her worst enemy. And she's an actual painter. She says it is so painful. Uh, and writers say the same. Um, and then uh, I went, th I went through a breakup as I was doing the illustrations for the show. So I would go into that room and and literally just cry and howl and smear paint around and have a nap and get up and it was dreadful. So by the time it got to the rehearsal process, I thought I was too tired to to actually contribute anything more. But then you get you're only twenty five percent or ten percent of the energy in the room, and then these other people come in and just manipulate your words, your pictures. If you have actors who are good, then then you can you can see pictures transform in front of your eyes. You know, it's really quite amazing. And as a first time director, what I didn't know is that the first time an actor delivers a piece of dialogue, even if the script is still in their hand and they're just kind of working it on the floor, the first time you hear it is it is at its most perfect. So then, what what I had to understand is that when the audience hears it, they're hearing it for the first time. Because um, I was always, and this is no no insult to to the actors who are wonderful. Um, I'm in love with all of them, but uh, but the first time I heard them say it was always my favorite, and it never it never it never got better than that. What is next for you? And I don't just mean in terms of like what is the next production, but but production. yeah, like what sort of skills do you want to master? Where where do you see yourself going? What's the next phase? Should I say? Yeah. I, I I say that when something excites me as much as theatre does, I'll go and do that thing. But nothing has has equaled theatre yet. So so I think the next thing, ideally, is is still theatre. I mean, obviously, you have to do other work to pay the bills. Um, I want to I want to understand lighting a lot better. Um, and it was I had. Uh, consultations we couldn't afford a lighting designer on this production but I had consultations from two very good lighting designers um, and that's something I'd really like to get my head around maybe it's being controlling but I think as much as many of the skills as you can 
uh, have yourself in the theater, then you, you know, you, you open the scope of what's possible when you don't have any money. If I can write, if I can direct, if I can light, then I can collaborate with people like that. But if they're not available, I can do it myself. So it's, it's definitely theater next. And there's a project that I have in mind, uh, but it's still very wet. I, I don't know what it is quite yet. And what happens with the borrow pit? So our listeners, um, they've heard this interview, they're completely riveted. Where and when can they see your work in the coming months and year? We are negotiating for a couple of the festivals next year. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm allowed to. It's so ridiculous. I'm talking like like this is, you know, like Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, nothing's confirmed yet, but some festivals next year. And then a three-week run in Cape Town uh, towards the end of this year. Okay, mm. fantastic. So listeners, yeah. if you want to see the borough pits, get yourself to Cape Town. And then a last question that I always ask my guests, well, I mean, mostly I ask my guests about what books they're reading. But in your case, I wanted to ask, what art are you enjoying right now? So TV or fine art or film or dance that, that you think mm. our listeners would get a kick out of going to watch or, or enjoying? Um, I, I mentioned that I watched Phantom Thread last night, which I just thought was fantastic. And it, it's got a whole lot of Borrow Pit-esque themes and it's just also detailed and slow. I thought it was wonderful. That's Daniel Day-Lewis, if I'm right. Didn't he win yes, an Oscar? Or, yeah. Yeah, he, if he didn't, uh, I can. he should have been nommed. Yeah, he knocked it out the park. Um, <laughs> yes, and, and continuing with my, the, I suppose the polite word is global and the impolite one is Eurocentric tastes. Um, I've just uh, started the fourth Edward St. Auburn, which is those um, semi-autobiographical stories about the aristocratic rich kid who was abused and took lots of heroin. And I just think they're quite fab as well. Oh, <laughs> I don't know those at all. I'm, I'm in. Oh, no. And then, and then a poet called Max Ritvo. Um, he only released one collection of poems uh, in his short life. He died at 26. It's called Four Reincarnations. Um, and they are yeah, very, very moving and beautiful. Gemma, it has been so fantastic interviewing you. Thank you for giving me your time, especially on a, a Sunday morning. And um... Jess, thanks so much. This was fantastic. <laughs>